0: We now look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, as we are continuing in our worship, thankful for the opportunity to sing praise to you, give offerings to you, now absorb truth that's given by you. We have the opportunity to delve deep into your word. Again, we're not interested in the opinions of a pastor. We are interested in the sovereign truth of a holy, righteous God. We're not interested in things that were born in the temporal and made for the temporal and all are encapsulated in the temporal. But we are utterly committed to understanding how the eternal invades the temporal. Because the reality is if it's not eternal, we're constantly five minutes behind the temporal. Always playing catch-up. But, Father, you have a way of taking the eternal and invading the temporal with meaning and purpose and clarifying the issues of the hour with your truth. So if anybody comes here today confused about reality and confused about matters of truth, we're asking you will speak to that heart and speaking of that heart. In these minutes together now, we're praying that you would warm these hearts. You would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here in now the second of these three worship services to see Jesus
1: and Him only. As we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the pinnacle moment.
0: The critical moment, the preeminent moment in that gathering of the joint session of Congress on February 28th of this year, where the President paused and said, we are joined tonight by Karen Owens, the widow of U.S. Navy Special Operator Senior Chief William Brian Owens, Ryan died as he lived, a warrior and a hero, battling against terrorism and securing our nation. There was a pause. The Congress stood and applauded for a long time in Karen Owens' honor. As they took their seats, the president then continued, I just spoke to our great General Mattis, who reconfirmed that And I quote, Ryan was a part of a highly successful raid that generated large amounts of vital intelligence that will lead to many more victories in the future
1: against our enemy. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity.
0: And then the president added, For as the Bible teaches us, There is no greater act of love
1: than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The Apostle John would have nodded his head at
0: that point because the president was referencing John chapter 15 verse 13. And it's utterly astounding the way in which the upper room discourse that Jesus provided his disciples had a tremendous bearing upon the way in which John now pens his thoughts in this epistle. So what we want to do now is to explore that teaching, for as the Bible teaches us, there is no greater act of love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And understand that that's the epicenter behind the teaching that John's delivering here in these verses. So what I want to do with you in these minutes together as we continue our worship and continue our study in 1st John that we began in January is now draw out three significant distinctives about authentic love. True love that has direct bearing upon a culture that starved for love, but it's embracing counterfeit love. And needs the real thing. Three distinctives. And the first is coming now out of verse 11. And we're going to put it like this.
1: For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. That we should love one another.
0: First, in order to love authentically. Not artificially. In order to love authentically. Note first the expectation that God sets for us here. And notice how it begins. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Now, what we've got to bear in mind is that you and I are message bearers. And the way in which we bear this message is not only done verbally, not only done visibly, It is worked out relationally to the highs and lows and the challenges of life, microscopically in the smallest of our more intimate relationships, macroscopically in the larger and larger contexts in which we're connected to one another. But he wants us to understand that we are message bearers. And now the apostle John likewise is the message bearer to this next generation of disciples. That as Jesus had discipled Peter and John and all the others, John now, last man standing among the apostles, the others have gone to be with Jesus. John now, as he in his latter years is teaching about what matters most, wants us to understand the significance of what real love, true love, authentic love is all about. This is the message that you have heard from The beginning. And you say, well, Gary, when you say the beginning, from the beginning of what? Well, for the Jewish reader, he or she would know that in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, God had said to the Israelites via Moses, but you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then to notarize it, he says, I am the Lord. And so this is a matter of authority at this point. As this command was being ushered in. But not only was it ushered in then, it was re-ushered in that upper room. It seems as though the Apostle John can't escape the richness of the teaching that he heard in that upper room. Where he had said, little children, yet a little while, I'm with you, you'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. He doesn't end with that you love one another. He adds, just as I have loved you, he set the bar high, you see. And the fact that it's a new commandment tells me and tells you at the same time that this is not something that comes natural, does it? It doesn't come natural, otherwise no commandment would even need to be given. We would inherently, innately do this. But there is something distinctive and unique about this form of love, not a cultural form of love that counterfeits this, because the Greek word agape carries with it the notion, the connotation, you see, of a sacrificial kind of love. A glimpse into the way in which uh, I have to go about undoing counseling every now and then. Several years back, she came up to me and sat down in the office and said, Dr. Highlander, I'm seeing somebody right now and I'm wrestling with whether or not this is true love. And so I leaned back in the chair and she begins to pose the question, Do we have any models out there where I can measure this by? It's a great question. So I said, Here's what I generally recommend. You're looking at this young man right now and you're unsure. I want you to pick out in your mind five or so men in their 60s or 70s who demonstrate godly masculinity. She's in her 20s at that point. Look at the various traits as to how they have lived out authentic Christianity in their godly masculine form. And ask yourself whether this individual you are considering right now fits the profile of those men. In other words, be visionary, project ahead, and then bring it back to the present, and ask yourself, how do I profile this in a way that makes sense in my own personal relationships? And then I added, I'm about to give you five, I believe, biblical distinctives of biblical love rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ, that could help you not only in this relationship one-on-one, but in your relationships throughout the body of Jesus Christ to be able to identify authentic, real, true love. At first, this kind of love we're describing here is sacrificial, not self-serving. In other words, if the individual is self absorbed rather than Christ absorbed, red flags should be waved high. Second, this kind of authentic real love is shaped by God's will, not by our feelings. Moods, emotions, feelings fluctuate. We need a standard. God has set the bar high. God has said that we are to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the high standard of love. The bar has been set. Thirdly, we've got to buy into here at this point is that real authentic love meets needs, not mere wants. Wants vary and fluctuate as well. Meet the need Versus meet the want. You want aim for what's core. This is what God has done sending Jesus to the cross to die in our place for our sins. Fourth. Real, authentic, true love is continual. And not periodic or episodic. It's the kind of thing that lasts through both the highs and the lows. The extremes of life. And fifth this kind of real authentic true love carries with the idea that it is directional pointed toward Christ not directional pointed toward self it takes us right back to the one who died in our place you see for our sins this is real love and this is what gets worked out in the laboratory of life that a church finds itself in day in, day out, week in, week out, as we, through the highs and the lows and the various extremes of personalities on the spectrum of the relational dynamic of body life, work out what real love is and real relationship, you see. And so you're a message bearer. You're a message bearer to the next generation. You're a message bearer to those at work. You're a message bearer in the community. You are bringing authenticity into the counterfeit world. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, the Apostle John writes, as he recalls now what Jesus Christ had said in that upper room in John chapter 13. And now he gets to the core that we should love, not selectively, but love collectively one another. And Chuck Colson grasped that idea, and in some of his selections in his powerful book, Dangerous Grace, he tells the story, for example, in Northern Ireland of Mary and Joan. And Mary was once a member of a Marxist paramilitary organization, a group that even the IRA regarded as radical. Mary helped plant a bomb in a nightclub, setting off an explosion that killed 18 people, injured 66 others. It was considered one of the worst atrocities in the history of the the Irish religious conflict. Or Joan, on the other hand, was a soldier in the Ulster Defense Regiment, part of the British Army stationed in Northern Ireland, and she was sentenced to prison for murder. But in prison, both came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Cosen wrote that they became fast friends, sisters in Jesus, meeting together in prayer and fellowship. These two women, who represented polar opposites in the sides of the Ireland armed conflict, find peace with one another in Jesus. And then there's Peter, a Catholic, hitchhiking to Belfast one day when he was picked up by a man named David. And Peter noticed that David's arms were decorated with loyalist tattoos, slogans, symbols used by a Protestant terrorist group. And Peter knew his life could be in danger, but David, it turned out, had become a Christian. Converted through prison fellowship. And before Peter climbed out of the car that day, he too had given his life to Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord. The two men became inseparable friends. Their lives a vivid message of reconciliation that comes through the work of Christ on that cross. What happens in body life is that God brings together people that you and I might even describe culturally as polar opposites, maybe when it comes to matters of personality or life experiences, backgrounds, whatever. And we become the laboratory for the culture, where not politically, there's an artificial way of trying to pull people together, not culturally, where community group leaders try to pull people together, but where the church is truly the church, and where regeneration is the norm And people are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the dynamics of this is getting worked out from the heart, outward into the community. We embrace that this is the message, therefore we are the message bearers, that you have heard from the beginning. For John, it was that upper room, but before that, very frankly, God delivered it via Moses in that Leviticus chapter 19, powerful teaching on authentic, real love. That you, in fact, that you, in fact, love one another. So now this, then, becomes the expectation that God sets for you and sets for me, where we are able to distinguish it in a culture of tolerance, a culture that confuses love and tolerance, where Josh McDowell puts it this way, which is harder? Tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. Love responds, I must do something even harder. I'll love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I'll tell you the truth because I'm convinced the truth sets you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I'll plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you are worth the risk. Tolerance seeks to be inoffensive. Love takes risks. Tolerance glorifies division. Love seeks real unity. Tolerance costs nothing. Love costs everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish shall not perish but have everlasting life, you see. And so now what you and I find here is that the expectation was met, the reality was fulfilled at the cross of Jesus Christ. But now as Jesus discipled John, and John in turn disciples others, there, you will find, and you will find, I will find together collectively that the bar has been set high. Authenticity is the expectation. And in a culture that is starved for this kind of thing, in order to love authentically, you note know, first of all the expectation God sets for us in verse 11. For as the president put it, Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. For as the Bible teaches us, there is no greater act of love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. But what is interesting to me about that whole matter of the expectation is that after the address was delivered, I went on YouTube and I explored various websites and I looked at the various newspaper accounts across the nation of how they were posting this on their websites. And the speech at that point in the articles I was reading ended with Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity, and then eliminated the phrase, for as the Bible teaches, there is no greater act of love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So then you and I become the message bearers we bring the text into context in a fallen world. and We bring people to the point of understanding where expectation and reality come together, where God breaks into time and sends Jesus Christ to the cross to die in our place for our sins. Because this kind of love is agape love, sacrificial love, real love, expectant love. In order to love authentically, number one, you note the expectation God sets for us in verse 11. But now you allow for your eyes to canvas verses 12 down through verse 16, don't you? And as you do so, here then becomes the second distinctive we're going to draw out for ourselves. The number two, in order to love authentically now, note the examples here that God contrasts, that he contrasts for us. He's going to offer you and offer me polar opposites. He's going to offer you and he's going to offer me a negative and a positive. He's going to offer you and he's going to offer me a Cain and a Christ. A Cain who would take life versus a Christ who would give life. A Cain who is prototypical of this world versus Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity who entered into this world. And now you begin to allow for the text to unfold before us because you now link together verse 11 and the expectation to verse 12 and the examples. And now you start with the negative because God deals with balance here and he wants you to deal with reality, which is what the scriptures do for you and for me. So now you look at your relationships and you and I have got to ask ourselves the tough question.
1: What's the quality of my relationships? You ponder D.A. Carson's book,
0: Love in Hard Places. And you ask yourself, and where are the hard places in my current life experience? Then you consider furthermore the hard people. And maybe it's just not clicking. Clicking even with individuals within the extended fellowship. And you ask yourself, okay, is there a different approach I can take because at some point out there are various languages of love. Maybe I've got to get beyond the mer- marital aspect of that and begin to apply it to the broader context of all the relational dynamics. What are the various ways in which I can get into the soul of that person as a message bearer of agape? Well, now, in verse 12, what John does at this point is that he who was the beloved one of Jesus points out the negative. We should not be like Cain. And you say, well, again, not quite sure I can recall all the details of that story. It's in the Older Testament. Give me a bit of a recall here. Do our best. Because in Genesis chapter 4, that we find is that the next generation has arrived on the scene, Cain and his brother Abel. Now we've got to bear in mind that Eve bore Cain. Eve bore Abel. And now we are told in Genesis chapter 4, Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord. So he's a religious man. He was. He's bringing something to God. Outwardly, that looks like a good thing. He could fit in well. Furthermore, he brought to the Lord an offering. He brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He was a man who worked with the ground. So he's working within his own comfort zone. Abel also brought something that he and Cain have in common. The word brought. They both brought something, and they also brought something to the same object of worship, God. But Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fair portions. There's emphasis in the original language here, firstborn of the flock, the fair portions. In other words, there is something of significance here. It's in essence like the tithe that comes even before the offering. And what we're told is that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now what fascinates me is that the regard word is used not once but twice and carries with it the idea in the Hebrew to gaze into, to look into. Now what furthermore interests me at this point is the word offering. Cain's offering comes from a Hebrew word which was also used in Levitical books chapters to describe grain offerings were completely acceptable to God. So that tells me then that the issue was not necessarily the blood offering. No.
1: The issue was not the gift. The issue is the giver. God gazes into the heart.
0: The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And Cain's heart, not his offerings, the problem, the issue here. And seen in the last part of verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Literally, it burned Cain greatly. Or to the core. And his face dropped. In other words, with Abel, it's a matter of the heart, but with Cain, it's a matter of the face. And his gaze shifts away, you see, from God. You find yourself shifting away from God because of some relational issue. At this point then, what you and I are told, don't be like Cain, who is of the evil one murdered his brother. And so we can consider now The people of Cain, they take life. Christ gives life. You reach New Testament times, and there's Herod, who is simply following the prototype of the world, Cain's strategy, Cain's ways, Cain's methods, self-absorbed rather than self-giving. Herod took life, threatened in kingship matters. Jesus came to give life. And then you begin to think through how this relates to a culture that can't distinguish between the counterfeit and the real. And then your mind goes back to the Book of the Saints, where Angoden tells the story of Father Maximilian Kolbe, prisoner in Auschwitz, August 1941. Prisoner escapes from the camp. In reprisal, the Nazis order that ten prisoners have to die by starvation. Father Kolbe offered to take the place of one of the condemned men. The Nazis kept Kolbe in the starvation bunker for two weeks and then put him to death by lethal injection on August 14th of 1941. Thirty years later, a survivor of Auschwitz described the effect of Kolbe's action. Quote, It was an enormous shock to the entire camp we became aware that someone among us in this dark night of the soul was raising the standard of love on high. Someone unknown like everyone else, tortured and bereft of name and social standing, went to a horrible death for the sake of someone not even related to him, Therefore, it is not true, we cry, that humanity is cast down and trampled in the mud overcome by oppressors, overwhelmed by hopelessness. Thousands of prisoners were convinced that there's something more in this world to continue to live and that our torturers would not be able to destroy it. To say that Father Colby died for us or for that person's family Well, that is too great a simplification. His death was a directional sign pointing to where true true salvation is found. We were stunned by his act, which became for us a mighty explosion of light in the midst of our darkness. Now, the Apostle John has a brilliant way in his writings of offering contrasts. Gifted teachers utilize contrasts in their teaching. John uses light versus darkness. He uses life versus death. He uses truth versus falsehood. Love versus hate. And even in this section, Cain versus Christ. One takes, the other gives. And now you allow yourself to be put in hard places.
1: Life is uncomfortable. You've got to become comfortable with the uncomfortables.
0: God is not meant for you and me to cocoon. To simply position ourselves in a cocoon where I don't have to deal with realities. Jesus Christ did not cocoon in the Godhead. He entered into Bethlehem, and the Cain strategy was unfolding there, where death was the norm. And Herod was seeking to take life, while Jesus came to give life. And so there now you have it here. So in verse 13, he wants now for you and me to be able to be unshockable when it comes to the fact that life is fallen. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. My word, they hated Jesus. 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides, you see, in death. And right when you think you have spotted the negative, and you say, well, that is just so incredibly extreme.
1: Wisely, in a well-structured way, the Apostle John
0: now balances the negative with the positive. Balances Cain with Christ. One takes life. The other gives life. Notice what unfolds here in verse 16.
1: By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us.
0: There's the first F-O-R we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, the second FOA. There are two FOAs, agape love, authentic love, sacrificial love that takes us to the cross of Jesus Christ, encapsulated in 1 John 3.16. There are retired Pastors in each of the services, typically on Sunday morning, one of them came up to me and said, I I learned early on in the pastorate to link together 1 John 3.16 with John 3.16. Well put. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. First John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. What do I do with that practically, relationally? Here's your answer. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And what fascinates me is the phrase lay down. is the very same Greek word, which was used again in that upper room in John chapter 13, where Jesus laid down his outer garments in order to wash the feet of the disciples. Very same word. He was symbolically providing us a, a statement, a visual statement of love, in a sense of a laying down so that they could stand strong as he would go to the cross to die for their sins and ours. There's a story that comes out of the Middle East where Cyrus the Mede, conqueror of Babylon, the then-known world, had a general under his authority whose wife was accused of treason. The woman was tried before a tribunal, found guilty, sentenced to death. And after the sentence was announced, the general went to Cyrus with this request. King
1: Cyrus, please. Please. Let me take her place. Cyrus, in all of what the general asked, said to his court,
0: Can we terminate a love as great as this? Cyrus relaxed the sentence, paroled the woman to her husband, and as the two left the court, the general said to his wife, did you see the benevolent look in Cyrus' eyes as he pawed
1: into you? And the wife responded, I only had eyes for the one who loved me enough that he was willing to die for me. And what we've got to do with a culture where eyes are
0: continuously fleeting, moving, seeking, never finding, is to direct eyes to the one who died for you and died for me. Because the contrast between Cain and Christ is really the contrast between a fallen world and a risen Savior. So we point in the direction of the sinless one who died for the sinful ones. And now we become message bearers. And that as Francis Schaeffer points out, the way in which we relate to one another is an evangelistic statement to the way in which we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in this fallen world, you see. So there you have it now in verse 16. By this we know love. That he laid down his life. Here's your first four. For us. That is the vertical dimension. But you don't stop there. And we ought to lay down our lives. Here's your second F-O-R for the brothers. And now what you've done is holistically developed a worldview around agape that takes into account the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of life itself as you are a message bearer of what this entails in a world that is caught up with the counterfeit and is desperately, desperately in need of the real. And how does this work itself out? Let the church be the church. Don't let the church follow the culture. Let the church lead the culture. The scriptural should shape the cultural and the cultural shape the political.
1: Which means the church takes the lead. Don't wait for the politicians to do it. The
0: scriptural shapes the cultural. The cultural shapes the political. Don't fish downstream. Go to the source. The cross of Jesus Christ. Start there. In order to love authentically, note this, the expectation God sets for us in verse 11. Second of all, the examples God contrasts for us, the polar opposites, Cain versus Christ, 12 through 16. And now, once you've worked through the expectation of 11 and the examples of 12 through 16, you're ready then thirdly for the expressions, the expressions that God expects of us in 17 and 18, which now appear on the screen. In other words, what you're saying now, Gareth, get practical with me as I can possibly be. My reaction is, well, let Scripture be as practical as God chooses to be. And so in 17 and 18, but if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. Typical, John has learned from his Savior. He's going to pose a question. How does God's love abide in him, utilizing
1: again that masterful word, love? Little children, he got that from
0: the upper room. Abide, he got that from the upper room. Let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. Baby care ministry next week, great opportunity Mother's Day to be able to demonstrate that kind of thing to be able to speak to the culture visibly, what God has expressed through the work of Jesus Christ. But we authenticate by going to the cross, where the eternal invades the temporal. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, so you ponder now, and who could that be in my circle of involvements? Yet closes his heart against him, Where's your heart at this morning? How does God's love abide in Him? The question posed. And now the practical application given. In other words, the expression of real, authentic, true love. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. And that cross where Jesus Christ hung was a deed spoken with truth. Gail McDonald and Gordon McDonald tell this story jointly. In Gordon's words, Gail and I were in an airplane, seated almost at the back. And as the plane loaded up, a woman with two small children came down the aisle to take the seat right in front of us. And behind her, another woman. And the two women took the A and C seats, One of the children sat in the middle seat, and the second child was on the lap of one of the women. I figured these two—these were two mothers, two mothers who were probably traveling together with their kids. I hoped the kids wouldn't be too noisy because I was writing. The flight started. My prayer was not answered.
1: Or was it? The air was turbulent. The children cried a lot.
0: The ears hurt. It was an incredibly miserable flight. And I watched as these two women kept trying to comfort these children. And the woman at the window played with the child in the middle seat, trying to make her feel good and paying lots of attention. And I thought, man, boy, these young women here get a medal for what they are doing. But then things went downhill fast from there. Toward the last part of the flight, the child in the middle seat got sick. Next thing I knew, she was losing everything from every part of her body. Diaper was was not tight, and before long, a stench began to rise through the cabin. It was unbearable. And I could see over the top of the seat that stuff you don't want me to describe was all over everything. It was on this woman's clothes. It was all over the seat. It was on the floor. Another plug for baby care, by the way. It was one of the most repugnant things I had seen in a long time. The woman next to the window patiently comforted the child and tried her best to clean up the mess and make something out of a bad situation. The plane landed, and when we pulled up to the gate, all of us were ready to exit the plane as fast as we could. And the flight attendant came up with paper towels, handed them to the woman in the window seat, and said, Here, ma'am. These are for your little girl. And the woman said, this isn't
1: my little girl. Aren't you traveling together? No.
0: I've never met this woman and these children before
1: in my entire life. And suddenly I realized I had just seen love lived out. She was expressing the love of Christ.
0: The expectation of 11, the examples of 12 through 16, lead to the expression in 17 and 18, which take us back to a statement made where so many newspapers chose to emit. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. But if you read the transcript, it would go on to say, for as the Bible teaches us, there is no greater act of love than to lay down one's life for one's friends.
1: Relationally, We're message bearers of Christ's cross for God's glory. Let's stand together.
0: So now, Father, whether we start with the home or elsewhere, we keep expanding the concentric circles of our lives, asking, and what is the quality of my relationship?" with others
1: love in hard places love among hard people
0: and then I open my heart to the one who died for my heart for my sins so I take that message of salvation what Christ did for us And now you challenge me and challenge each of us to live it out visually as well as verbally in our relationship to you and in our relationship to one another so that the world might see, Father, what authentic, real, true love is and be drawn to Jesus. And for this we give you all the
1: praise. In Jesus' name. God bless you.